0: Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here. You know, generally, when somebody asks you how you're doing, we lie. Or at least pretend. Everything's fine. But uh, when Elmo was asked, this week, asked people this week how everybody's doing, people felt very safe to be honest with Elmo. Elmo sent out a tweet. Elmo was just checking in. How is everybody doing? Some of the responses were funny. Domino's Pizza, totally fine, and some of the responses were not so funny. Elmo, I just got laid off. Elmo, I'm depressed and broke. Wife left me, daughters don't respect me, my job is a joke. Any more questions, Elmo? Jesus, man, yeah. So in this series that we started last week called Guilt-Free Wisdom on Money, we are at the second of that uh, series in which you see the topic is going to be stress is bad. The responses to Elmo's question, how are you doing, indicate that a lot of our stress has to do with money issues. We saw last week that a survey by Capital One Revealed that 77% of people say that money is the highest stress that they face of all. Higher than family, higher than politics, the highest of all. Financial coach Kim Uzel says, money worries follow us around, invading our thoughts, leading us to feel overwhelmed, embarrassed, ashamed, or guilty. And then she says, most people would rather talk about almost anything other than the state, of their finances. And financial anxiety can affect us in so many ways uh, sleepless nights, a short fuse, tension in relationships. It affects us in ways that uh, are so very unhealthy as we respond so negatively to those feelings of anxiety. Sometimes it could even cause us to bury our head in the sand, as they say. Denial is just not just a river in Egypt. We avoid checking our bank balance. We don't open the bills. Sometimes, financial anxiety causes us to save excessively. Most of the time, financial anxiety causes us to spend crazily. It's the end of the month. Bills are coming. We don't get paid for a few more days. The fridge is bare. We're running out of toilet paper. What are we going to do? How can we make ends meet? Do I buy groceries and just pay the fee that the utility company is going to send me for not paying my utility bill? Anxiety is a very big topic in the Christian scripture. In Matthew chapter 6, which is part of the Jesus is what we call Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us four times in nine verses Do not worry. Over the years, and I've heard a lot of sermons on that passage, but over the years, the sermons that I've heard, the preachers will tell us that worry is a sin. The crux of the argument is this that if Jesus said don't, well, don't means don't. And so worry is a sin. If Jesus said don't, Jesus is issuing a command. And so when the preachers tell us that worry is a sin, do you know what that does to chronic worriers? (laughs) It makes us worry even more. So I ask you today, is worry a sin? Maybe not. Imagine you're out to dinner with a friend and the bill comes and you reach for your wallet, and you tell your friend who is reaching for their wallet, hey, don't worry, I've got this. You're not issuing to your friend a moral imperative. You're not giving your friend a command. You are saying to your friend, I really want to do this. You're not putting me out. I can do it. I can handle it. I've got the money. Don't worry about it. I would be honored to buy this dinner. When you tell your child not to worry. You're not getting on to your child for doing something wrong. You're trying to comfort your child. You're trying to express love and warmth. When is a time in your life that you've really experienced worry? Denise and I talked about this very briefly. And uh, the times that we went through the most worry, I suppose, was when we went from the Baptist church to Fellowship Bible Church that we started in 20, no, 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 1994, and went from a church of around 600 at the Baptist church to a church of around six when we started that church at Fellowship Bible. The second time we were so worried is when we started the venues that was a big worry the third time that we worried was when I went through the beginning of some of my health issues and some of the physicians that I was seeing was thinking I had lung cancer and so we dealt with that for several weeks that was a big worry The C word's a scary word melanoma that I've had three times that was nothing compared to the possibility of the lung cancer Don't worry. It's hard not to worry when those kinds of things happen. But when you tell your child, and that's what we all feel like at times, not to worry it's not a command. It's a comfort. You're saying to your child, I've got this. Maybe that's what Jesus was doing. He says no one can serve two masters either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other And so you cannot serve both God and money Therefore I tell you do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body What you will wear? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air They do not sow Or reap or store away in barns and yet your Heavenly Father and Philip feeds them (laughs) don't know what the birds in my neighborhood would do if if I was not there (laughs) are you not much more valuable than any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life and why do you worry about clothes see how the flowers of the field grow They do not labor or spin. yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? And preachers would really point their fingers at us with this one, you little faith. And it's not saying so much you of little faith. It's more like Jesus is saying, I get it. Our faith is so small. It's hard to trust God when our physical needs are not met. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For even the pagans run after all these things. And I never did like that translation very well. Pagans were seen as anybody that uh, really just didn't have any kind of a connection with the spiritual. Uh, They weren't Gentiles so much from the Jewish perspective. But uh, it, it didn't have the negative meaning that it does for us today. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But do this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So what do you think Jesus is trying to get across here? Any ideas? What do you think the people on the mountainside? What's that? Go around go. You know what? I like your thinking there. I, I thought the same thing when I was reading that. Yeah, okay. What would church look like? Yeah. You know, you've heard public speaking uh, advice: If you're scared or nervous or anxious about speaking in public, just imagine everybody being naked out there. I am not doing that. <laughs> but, yeah, that's a good thought. What, what do you think the people heard Jesus say? Live in, the now. Live in the now. I like that. Focus on the good, not the bad. Focus on the good, not the bad. Have faith. Don't be so materialistic. Those are all really wise understandings of that story. Okay. Look who happened to provide for you. And just don't worry. Yeah. I love to picture myself as a child again. And, uh... With, with a loving parent. And I kind of think that helps me think of myself in Jesus' uh, lap or something. And Jesus is just, just telling me, he's talking to me like I'm a, just a scared kid. And uh, I think he's saying to me, Philip, you don't have to worry because your divine parent has got this. I, I love you. I care for you. I'm going to take care of you. It's not a passage of moral warning. It's not a command that if we don't do it, we're sinning. It's just a a way of comfort. It's almost like God is singing the Casey Musgrave or my mind went to Beach Boys. Don't worry, baby, everything's going to be all right. Yeah. This is a sense, and Dennis, you mentioned it here, uh, both in In uh, early Christianity, in the first 400 years of Christianity, there was more of a mystical Christianity than when Christianity became an expression of the Roman Empire. And in that mystical Christianity, there was such a similarity to the spirituality of Buddha. and And it was that idea of don't worry, just be present. Just today, just right now, wherever you are. Most preachers from my religious heritage would always associate financial stress with the problem, with the experience of debt. And the go-to verse during that, those sermons, was Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. And I am not exaggerating. I don't ever remember a sermon on this verse in which the first part of that verse was talked about. It was always a club that the preacher used turning that second part of the verse into something to beat us over the head with about not being in debt. But what I want us to understand today is the context, not just of that phrase, so the whole verse, but the context of Proverbs 22. And yes, the proverb is talking about this, the common sense wisdom of avoiding uh, being enslaved to debt, but it's also addressing uh, very wealthy employers and warning them. It's a very serious warning, not to be enslaved to the temptation that everybody who is an employer would have over oppressing their employees. The rich rule over the poor. And then he unpacks that a little bit. And so when we read this in the context, we read that it's a serious warning against the wealthy who would oppress the poor. And it's also an encouragement to the wealthy. Don't be oppressors of the poor. Don't be those who enslave people to to a very minimal way of living their life. But instead, use the opportunity that you have to to help through the struggle of poverty, to enable people and to equip people uh, through their poverty into a a very uh, living wage. So here's some of the context of that. Whoever sows injustice, whoever does not treat people fairly, will reap calamity in their life. The problem is, as David writes in one of the Psalms, he says, why do the unrighteous prosper so? And we've seen people who are unjust in their life and how they treat others just seem to have it all. And then it says, the rod that they wield, that they, they use to control people, it will be broken. The generous will themselves, however, be blessed, for they share the food with the poor. The one who oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth and the one who gives gifts to the rich, both come to poverty. So do not exploit the poor because they're poor. and Do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord himself will take up their case and will exact life for life very serious warning a big encouragement to take care of people especially if you're an employer who work for you you know 55 percent of America's largest companies 55 percent over half pay no income tax in 2020 despite their huge profits And half of those companies paid no federal income tax for three years running. All of it was legal. But is it just? Is it right? So when these multi-billion dollar companies don't pay any income tax, what does that do for most of us to our tax burden? And what does that do for people who benefit from the care and the concern that is given to them through government funds? It's all legal what businesses are doing, but the question is, how would the writer of Proverbs feel about that? Is it just? Is it the right thing to do? I mentioned last week that since 1980, the bottom half of earners saw a 20% growth in their income. Yay! 20% since Denise and I got married in 1980. But the top 10% of earners saw their income grow, not 20%, not 40%, But how about 144%? All legal. But is it moral? Is it just? And how much of the stress that is being felt in finances by 77% of the country, a result of unjust behavior by employers? Go to the Christian scripture. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted. Your ma- the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are c- corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Wow. Harsh words. James is condemning and saying that the people are doomed for how they got their money and what they're doing with their money or not doing with their money. Money that should be in the hands of the people that work for them is instead in the vaults of the employers. And the employers are hoarding their wealth and they are neglecting their workers. This idea of taking care of your workers and taking care of your employees goes all the way back to the Hebrew Scripture. This is the end of James. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In Leviticus, in the Hebrew Scripture The law said, you must not cheat your neighbor or rob him. You must not keep a hired worker's salary all night until morning. Pay immediately. Abdullah M. Umar, who was a good friend, a companion of Muhammad, the founder of the Islamic faith, said this, Pay the worker his wages before his sweat has died, has dried. Be fair. The Hebrew scripture, the Christian scripture, the Islamic faith all tell us that business leaders must be especially diligent about paying their workers well. James' words are harsh. The wages you have failed to pay are accusations they're speaking truth to power. Martin Luther King Jr. echoes James. On the day that he died, April 4, 1968, Dr. King was writing a sermon. The title of his sermon, he never got to preach it, was Why America May Go to Hell. Part of his sermon says this, America is going to hell if we don't use her vast resources to end poverty and make it possible For all of God's children to have the basic necessities of life. I just wonder if people got as mad at James as they did at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I wonder how James was treated that week. How many emails did James get that week after he told the church that? You know, today we revere Dr. King At the time of his death in 1968, 75% of Americans disapproved of him. Between 1963, during the march in Washington, and 1968, five short years, his disapproval rating increased 25%. And around the 1968 time, if you know your history, or if you remember 1968, Dr. King was speaking out against the Vietnam War, He was always speaking out against racial injustice. But he was also speaking about economic disparity. And people really just didn't like that. Unless you were a victim of economic disparity. Dr. King and I think probably James, I know the Hebrew prophets, all experienced a lot of rejection. And when you speak out against injustice, it's kind of, it can be a lonely life. It could be a very unpopular, an unfriendly life to speak out. I don't have this on the screen for us. I should have put it up there. But as I went back yesterday and read Proverbs 22 before this morning, I, I looked again at the first part of Proverbs 22 And verse 2, and you can look at it while we're even talking. If you want to find it on your phone, go right ahead and do so, at least this afternoon. But the writer says, rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. And I just wonder, is there a solution to this disparity, economic disparity? And is there a solution to the stress in that verse? Rich and poor have something in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. And it made me ask the question, I wonder if we would treat our workers better, if we would treat one another better, if we really felt like we were unified, if we really felt like we had something in common, if we really saw them as family. That's kind of a bad analogy (laughs) because some of our family doesn't treat us well. But if they were an ex... Would I treat an employee Better if, that, if I understood the, the unity that that employee and myself have. The connection that we have. I wonder really if our stress level as it comes to finances would be lower if we all practiced and lived by the Vulcan salute. Anybody want to tell me what that means? Oh, I love the Trekkies in our church. <laughs> It's the universal wish, this all of, I want everybody to live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Mr. Spock's Vulcan salute of live long and prosper carries with it the very essence of the Hebrew phrase and term and concept of shalom, used over 250 times in the Hebrew scripture. And literally, it does mean, I wish everyone would live long and prosper. Not just members of my church or my denomination. Not just members of my political party. But I want the Democrats and the Republicans and the independents. I want the capitalists and the socialists and the communists. I want everybody to do well. To live long. And prosper Shalom is the coming together anxiety the word that Matthew uses to describe what Jesus taught that day and Jesus, Jesus wasn't teaching in Greek he was teaching in Hebrew or Arabic or Aramaic and but in translated in Greek he uses a word worry that means to be divided that our minds are divided so peace is coming together. Anxiety is being to get divided. And when we're stressed, our mind is divided. We have, we have a hard time focusing on the now. It's worrying about yesterday, worrying about tomorrow and not right now. Our minds are divided. Our culture is divided. Our minds are being pulled in different directions. So maybe the opposite of peace is pieces. Our minds are in pieces, our culture is in pieces. So peace is more than just an idea. Peace is an action. And I'm just wondering if stress would be lowered if we acted in peace, in ways that would promote peace, where we would protect each other's rights, where we would safeguard each other's dignity, where we would actually pull together, we would care for one another, and get this: Can anybody, and so brave, be so brave as to quote for the rest of the congregation here the Golden Rule? Do unto others as they would have as you would have them do unto you. Aye. Right. Let's say it together: Do unto others as you would have them do unto you would there be less stress financially would there be less economic disparity if every employer in that one percent of the billionaire class treat employees as they would want the employees to treat them Do you think we would have more economic equity, fairness? Would there be the stress of finances if we all treated each other? And maybe even especially as it relates to the Hebrew prophets and James in the Christian scripture, if the ultra-wealthy who had responsibility for so many employees would treat their employees as they would want the employees to treat them. Yeah, it's fun to think about.